I am Dr. Mark McCullough. I will be reading Canto 4 from Dante's Inferno, translated by Mark Musa. After my reading, I'll give a brief commentary on that reading and questions for discussion. A heavy clap of thunder. I awoke from the deep sleep that drugged my mind startled, the way one is wind shaken out of sleep. I turned my rested eyes from side to side, already on my feet, and staring hard, I tried my best to find out where I was, and this is what I saw. I found myself right on the brink of Greece's abysmal valley that collects the thunderings of endless cries. So dark and deep and nebulous it was. Try as I might to force my sight below, I could not see the shape of anything. Let us descend into the sightless world, began the poet. His face was deathly pale. I will go first, and you will follow me. And I, aware of his changed color, said, But how can I go on if you are frightened? You are my constant strength when I lose heart. And he to me, The anguish of the souls that are down here paints my face with pity, which you have wrongly taken to be fear. Let us go on, the long road urges us. He entered then, leading the way for me down to the first circle of the abyss. Down there, to judge only by what I heard, there were no wails but just the sound of sighs rising and trembling through the timeless air, the sounds of sighs of untormented grief, burdening these groups that were diverse and teeming, made up of men and women and of infants. Then the good master said, you do not ask what sort of souls are these you see around you. Now you should know before we go in farther. They have not sinned, but their great worth alone was not enough, for they did not know baptism, which is the gateway to the faith you follow. And if they came before the birth of Christ, they did not worship God the way one should. I myself am a member of this group. For this defect and for no other guilt we here are lost, in this we alone suffer. Cut off from hope, we live on in desire. The words I heard weighed heavy on my heart, to think that souls are virtuous as these were suspended in that limbo, and forever. Tell me, my teacher, tell me, oh my master, I began wishing to have confirmed by him the teachings of unerring Christian doctrine. Did any ever leave here through his merit or with another's help or go to bliss? And he who understood my hidden question answered, I was a novice in this place when I saw Almighty Lord descend to us, who wore the sign of victory as his crown. He took from us the shade of our first parent, of Abel, his good son, of Noah too, and of obedient Moses who made the laws. Abram, the patriarch, David the king, Israel with his father and his children, with Rachel whom he worked so hard to win, and many more he chose for blessedness. And you should know, before these souls were taken, no human soul had ever reached salvation. We did not stop our journey while we, he spoke, but continued on our way along the woods, I say the woods, for souls were thick as trees. 
We had not gone too far from where I woke when I made up out a when I made out a fire up ahead, a hemisphere of light that lit the dark. Though we were still some distance from that place, we were close enough for me to vaguely see that distinguished people occupied that spot. O oh, glory of the sciences and arts, who are these souls enjoying special honor, dwelling apart from all the others here? And he to me, the honored name they bear that still resounds above in your own world wins heaven's favor for them in this place. And as he spoke, I heard a voice announce, Now let us honor our illustrious poet, his shade that left is now returned to us. And when the voice was silent and all was quiet, I saw four mighty shades approaching us, their faces neither joy nor sorrow. Then my good master started to explain, Observe the one who comes with sword in hand, leading the three as if he were their master. It is the shade of Homer, sovereign poet, and coming second, Horace the satirist. Ovid is the third, and last comes Lucan. Since they all share one name with me, the name you heard resounding in that single voice, they honor me and do well doing so. And so I saw gathered there the noble school of the master singer of sublimest verse, who soars above all others like the eagle. And after they had talked a while together, they turned and with a gesture welcomed me. And at that sign, I saw my master smile. Greater honor still they deigned to grant me. They welcomed me as one of their group, so that I numbered sixth among such minds. We walked together towards the shining light discussing things that here are best kept silent, as there they were most fitting for discussion. We reached the boundaries of a splendid castle that seven times was circled by high walls, defended by a sweetly flowing stream. We walked right over it as on hard ground. Through seven gates I passed with those wise spirits, and then we reached a meadow fresh in bloom. There people were whose eyes were calm and grave, whose bearing told of great authority. Seldom they spoke, and always quietly. Then, moving to one side, we reached a place spread out and luminous, higher than before, allowing us to view all who were there. And right before us on the lustrous screen, the mighty shades were pointed out to me. My heart felt glory when I looked at them. There was Electra standing with a group, among whom I saw Hector and Aeneas, and Caesar, falcon-eyed and fully armed. I saw Camilla and Penthesilea. Across the way I saw the Latian king, with Lavinia, his daughter, by his side. I saw the Brutus who drove out the Tarquin, Lucretia, Julia, Marcia, and Cornelia. Off by himself I noticed Saladin. And when I raised my eyes a little higher, I saw the master sage of those who know, sitting with his philosophic family. All gaze at him, all pay their homage to him. And there I saw Socrates and Plato, each closer to his side than any other. Democritus, who said the world was chance, Diogenes, Thais, Anaxagoras, Empedocles, Zeno, and Heraclitus. 
I saw the one who classified our herbs, Dioscorides, I mean, and I saw Orpheus, Tully, Linus, Seneca, the moralist, Euclid, the geometer, and Ptolemy, Hippocrates, Galen, Avicenna, and Averroes, who made the commentary. I cannot tell about them all in full. My theme is long and urges me ahead. Often I must omit things I have seen. The company of six becomes just two. My wise guide leads me by another way out of the quiet into tempestuous air. I come into a place where no light is. So let's start uh, this discussion with uh, uh, lines 40, starting at lines 40 and continuing um, through to uh, lines 45 and compare the translations and we'll allow that to sort of be our uh, lens to see how um, how this Canto four unfolds. So Musa has the translation lines 40 through 45. He uh, says, uh, this is in Virgil's, uh, these are in Virgil's words. This is after Dante has asked Virgil um, about limbo and about who is there and why. And Virgil defines um, the members of limbo um, who are who are not the uh, you know the patriarchs and not the unbaptized children. He is describing here the um, sort of virtuous pagans who have uh, not been bad enough to go to hell, but not been good enough and offered the grace and baptism of the church and and of Christ. And he says, um, Virgil says, for this defect and for no other guilt, we here are lost. In this alone we suffer, cut off from hope, we live on in desire. And this is Dante now. The words I heard weighed heavy on my heart to think that souls as virtuous as these were suspended in that limbo and forever. So that's Muse's translation. Mandelbaum has something different. He writes, for these defects and for no other evil, we now are lost and punished just with this. We have no hope, and yet we live in longing. Great sorrow seized my heart on hearing him, for I had seen some estimable men among the souls suspended in that limbo. And finally, Hollander translates the passage thus. For such defects and for no other fault we are lost and afflicted but in this, that without hope we live in longing. When I understood, great sadness seized my heart, for then I knew that beings of great worth were here suspended in this limbo. That's, these are very different translations, very different word choices, um, that which each word emphasizes Dante's reaction to, to limbo, to the virtuous pagans limbo, and um, particularly in Hollander's uh, seized, we get that word that's repeated quite often and will be repeated in Canto V in Dante's um, description of Fran Francesca and Paolo as being seized by love. But so we've got uh, Virgil's without hope, we live on in longing. 
my t my students, I, I I ask them the question of whether or not the souls, uh, such as uh, such as Virgil and um, Homer and the both the active and contemplative figures here of the pagans, whether their fate is worse than those damned uh, or not. Um, and the answer to that question, of course, no, it, their their fate is not worse, but it's not great. And I think this is the this is how I'd like to open or how I'm opening this this discussion, which is to to what degree is this a canto for melancholy um, picture of limbo, or is there something more happy about it? Is there something um, hopeful despite having no hope? That's the first that's the first question I think we ask ourselves in this entire like what is the tone of canto four? Um, so the translations all give us uh, various uh, tones to, to that uh, feelings of limbo and, and to whether or not limbo is be, to be considered something such as what Virgil uh, has uh, described as the kind of the, the garden of the afterlife. So it's difficult, I think, uh, in Dante to stick with the canto and not to not to forecast or anticipate future cantos and this one is particularly difficult to do I asked myself the question well why does Dante place limbo here why doesn't he place it uh, at the end of uh, his poem on hell and before uh, Dante enters into purgatory and that's still a question I haven't entirely answered but he takes it up here and he takes up the question of where do souls go who are neither saved nor damned? This is a doctrinal question since uh, the church at Dante's time had sort of developed through the theology and through the history of, of Catholic thought a limbo uh, for both um, th those who came before Christ uh, and yet were patriarchs or like Moses and Abraham uh, we call uh, these the patriarchs, and also um, the category of uh, the limbo of the unbaptized infants. So in other words, in order to enter into heaven, you need to be baptized according to the Christian church. And what would, what would it mean for uh, an infant to be unbaptized? Well, the church had a place, and this was the limbo of unbaptized infants. And this doctrine is, in modern times, been... Um, rendered, I think, um, moot in a sense, right? Um, I won't really get into that, but, but in, in, in Dante's time, it was a, it was a matter of, it, it was a matter of doctrine. It was a matter of belief. Um, de Goff says, Jacques de Goff in his work, The Birth of Purgatory, says that these questions of limbo and of, um, and the unbaptized infants, the patriarchs and the unbaptized infants wasn't really a matter of tremendous uh, repercussions for the for the practicing for the practicing believer, but were more theological debates. Um, and uh, we can actually look at Saint Thomas Aquinas's um, own own work um, in the supplement question sixty nine articles four through six. He discusses limbo, and there he asks questions about um, 
the, the limbo of the patriarchs and the unbaptized and whether limbo is the same as hell. And he says no to that. Um, and so Dante follows uh, Thomas actually quite closely uh, in his uh, discussion, in his, in his sort of placing limbo uh, in the Christ harrowing of hell and releasing the patriarchs uh, during, um, during Holy Saturday, during the Trivium, uh, where Christ descends to hell and um, helps the patriarchs escape from, from that kind of limbo state, from the, the bosom of Abraham. Um, so he follows that quite closely, and this is um, reflected in his question to Virgil, where he asks him whether anyone has escaped and gone to heaven, and Virgil sort of smiles here and recognizes, uh, uh, he recognizes Dante's point here is to test out the church's doctrine, and Virgil confirms and affirms the doctrine that Christ indeed, uh, he doesn't mention Christ by name, but of course this is Christ, the Lord, descends and brings the patriarchs up, and of course he leaves behind the pagans um, who were not patriarchs, but those who were good but not good enough. Um, Dante doesn't so much follow uh, Virgil, I'm, I'm sorry, um, St. Thomas Aquinas in, in suggesting that the uh, unbaptized uh, children are uh, not suffering. Actually, Dante has a slightly more sort of negative view on the afterlife for unbaptized infants than even St. Thomas does. Um, and the, of course, this category of the limbo for the patriarchs, I'm sorry, the, the limbo for the um, pagans is entirely created by Dante. This is Dante's own creation. And it shows us how much respect he has uh, for, um, for the pagans, for poets, for both uh, active and contemplative figures in Greek and Roman and Arabic uh, culture. All right, so wind our way back to the beginning. We'll notice that the, both the beginning, that the beginning and the end of Canto IV uh, began in darkness, and we'll see the theme of light throughout Canto IV, that it begins in darkness, that he wakes from a deep sleep and he can't even see what's in front of him. And then in the conclusion, they uh, both he and Virgil um, uh, sort of enter into, back into the darkness again. But in this Canto four, we have a bit of light, dim light, the castle, which, um, which houses the virtuous pagans, itself gives out a glow of light. This represents the sort of light of wisdom, the light of philosophy, philosophy's ability, poetry's ability to shed light on the things of this world. Not the great light of, of, of God, right? Not the beatific vision, but a dim life, nevertheless. And so Dante um, uh, Dante listens to Virgil as Virgil addresses him and says, let's go into this world. I'll go first and you follow me. Dante notices that Virgil's face is pale and asks him, um, why is your face pale? And you notice that, that, Virgil is, uh, that Dante is very much like a child looking at his mother to see uh, how his mother is responding to um, to the environment, to the events around them. And this will happen several times throughout the Divine Comedy. Uh, Virgil is a mind reader. He can read Dante's mind, and so he understands why Dante is asking this. And he, and he says, well, I pity, I'm pitying actually these, um, this group of, um, these groups of, of souls, 
uh, we are about to encounter. Now this word pity is important later, actually not that much later, the next canto, Dante will be uh, commanded not to pity the damned. But here pitying is appropriate. It's appropriate. Um, there is sadness over the state, um, the just state, but, the, but, but a sad state nevertheless of, the, of those who cannot reach the beatific vision. And so the paleness of Virgil's face here um, is not fear, but rather pity. And so the two enter into um, this first uh, uh, part. When I say the sort of, the, it's not really lower because it's not so much horizontal, but it's the anti-limbo limbo, which is the limbo for the unbaptized infants. And um, they are, to read Muse's translation, the sounds of sighs of untormented grief burdening these groups, diverse and teeming made up of men, and women and of infants. And the sighs, not wailing, not wailing like the damp, but sighs. Kind of these ex exhalation of, of breath. Like, ah. Um, do with that <laughs> as you as you will. Is that it's like is that the sigh at the end of the day when you put your feet up on the couch and ah yeah, just relax? Or is it the sigh of of too much? Um, I tend to think it's the sigh of too much, too much desire and not enough completion, not enough beatific vision, not enough um, satisfaction. So these, um, these, as we read through lines 40 to 45, the, the, the next set of group that he sees are just um, men and women and others who um, are lost, um, not because of uh, much of a defect, but the only defect um, that they were born before Christ and they did not live their life in a way in which was um, sort of fit um, to, to being saved. Now I say all this kind of ambiguous language because as we'll see later, Dante breaks his own rules. Um, very interesting. Dante's always breaking his own rules. Um, he's forming a doctrine. He's, he's believing. It's, he almost sounds orthodox and then he'll throw a pagan. <laughs> and then he'll throw a pagan in there. Uh, you're like, what? How did this guy get here? Uh, we'll see that later. So from this defect and no other guilt, we are lost. And this alone we suffer, cut off from hope. We live on in desire. So abandon all hope, ye who enter here. They do not have hope, and yet they live on in desire. Now, actually, St. Thomas has a discussion of the hope of the patriarchs and how the hope of the patriarchs actually improves their condition uh, versus the uh, unbaptized infants because they have no hope. Of ever being released from uh, from from limbo. Something to uh, something to note. So Dante then begins to outline the various groups here, and in the in the castle that that emits this this light, the light of wisdom, Dante encounters uh, three groups. He encounters the poets, what we might call the sort of the members of the active life of Greek Romans and, and Saladin, who's almost his own category there. And then finally, in lines 130 through 144, he names over 20 Greek Romans and Arabs who have sort of embraced the contemplative um, um, life. So let's take a look first at this, uh, this poet group. Who are the poets um, who welcome Virgil back? Well, um, they are the greats, according to Dante. Homer, Horace, Ovid, 
and Lucan. Um, and Homer is the greatest of these, or at least the one who leads them. See the one with the sword there. That is at line, let me see here. Observe the one, this is line 85. Line 86, observe the one who comes with sword in hand, leading the three as if he were their master. That's Homer. And then Horus and Ovid and Lucan. And according to Dante, they share all the same name and the resounding, they resound in the single voice and they speak together. Um, and this is, a, this is a moment where Dante is sort of welcomed into this group. Um, again, uh, a moment where Dante is able to, able to prove himself as a poet, one worthy to be counted among uh, the poets of old. Then Dante describes um, the, uh, the group of, of those in the active life. It's like he's gone to a party and he's mentioning all the people who showed up and there's 14 uh, named there as well and, um, and then 21 afterwards. And he says something very interesting Dante does at the end of this, at the end of this canto, he'll say, uh, well, I can't. I can't actually go through all of this. These were all of the different m m people I saw and members uh, I saw because it's just too much to get into and in what we discussed. And uh, I will keep it. I will keep it to myself. So at the end of Canto Four, you have this. Um, you have the kind of collision between Dante the poet and Dante the pilgrim. Dante the pilgrim had this experience. Dante the poet will not describe the experience not because it exceeds his ability, but because these are things best kept as mysteries. You'll see this several times as well. So what is this? Is this a description of a good place? Is this, a, is this Dante's way of um, echoing Virgil's own um, sort of paradisal, kind of paradise of, um, of Hades, where um, you know, figures, wise figures sit in the Elysian fields uh, you know, talking about uh, philosophy as if it was some um, infinite uh, seminar taught by a great professor, or is this uh, just um, a, ki a kind of uh, consolation for the beatific vision, and therefore, because not the greatest good, and no, and having no, having no possibility or hope of being the greatest good, something of a hell itself. Um, it depends on how you read this uh, canto. I think it can be read in both ways. Um, I, I would say that even the translations themselves indicate a kind of um, loss and a kind of sorrow. I would say Hollander points that out um, in this being seized with, with, with grief and anguish, as Dante is, understanding what, what this means. Um, I mean, this is a place where Dante cannot be. He can visit, but he cannot be there. Um, and so in many ways, it differs from almost everywhere he will, he will encounter in all of the divine comedy. Hell, purgatory, and heaven are all possibilities for Dante. Here is a place where there is no possibility for him. He has heard the gospel message. He's post-Christian. He's post-Christ, rather. Um, he's not part of the pagans, and so um, this is this is for Dante just to merely observe and to and to feel um, to feel both his role as a poet, but also to feel the loss of hope for 
his great mentor, Virgil. It would be interesting to hear about your reactions to the various pagans who are here, which pagans he chose. Um, you know, uh, there, it's some interesting choices, um, and Hollander um, has some uh, suggestions as to why he chose who he did. Clearly, these are the some of the greats. Some, these are some of the greats of Dante's time. Uh, they're also uh, figures that Dante actually doesn't have any particular, he knows they're not quote unquote real, but he, they're still nevertheless noble characters. Um, he'll make distinctions uh, uh, based on mistakes as when he, he calls, he says moral Seneca. At this time, they believe that the, uh, the Seneca who wrote the tragedies and the ones who wrote philosophy were different Senecas. And in fact, they aren't. Um, and yet this, this is why that word moral is there in, in order to indicate the difference, um, making sure you understand the, the Seneca who wrote the tragedies is not there, uh, but, but indeed, um, it's the same Seneca. Um, so, uh, interested to hear from you, you know, what, uh, what you felt about this. Certainly Socrates is given, um, a prime position here, um, and, uh, of, of deep respect. And generally speaking, philosophy, um, Dante, um, you know, is someone for whom for whom philosophy was extremely important, and he thought of it as being uh, kind of anticipation of um, an anticipation of of uh, experience uh, of the beatific vision. Uh, he he will uh, give up on philosophy for theology later in the poem, but but we know that Dante spent a good deal of his time reading philosophy and reading many of these figures we we see here in, in Canto 4. And so Dante is a big believer in the use of uh, pagan culture as a kind of uh, anticipation and preparation for uh, the Christian revelation um, and is certainly not uh, among those like Tertullian who thought that Athens and Greece uh, Athens and Greece uh, had nothing to do with uh, Jerusalem. So um, Dante is, is someone for whom the, the, the paganism meant something, despite the fact that he doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't at least at this at this stage of the game allow there to be uh, salvation here. So looking forward to our conversation, our discussion on this, and to dig deeper into Dante's um, respect for uh, respect for paganism.